Chapter forty six, part four of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume four, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter forty six, Troubles in Persia, part four. Amidst the glories of the succeeding campaign, Heraclius is almost lost to our eyes and to those of the Byzantine historians. From the spacious and fruitful plains of Albania, the emperor appears to follow the chain of the Hyrcanian mountains, to descend into the province of Medea or Iraq, and to carry his victorious arms as far as the royal cities of Casbin and Isiphan, which had never been approached by a Roman conqueror. Alarmed by the danger of his kingdom, the powers of Chosros were already recalled from the Nile and Bosphorus, and three formidable armies surrounded, in a distant and hostile land, the camp of the emperor. The Colchian allies prepared to desert his standard, and the fears of the bravest veterans were expressed, rather than concealed, by their desponding silence. "'Be not terrified,' said the intrepid Heraclius, "'by the multitude of your foes. With the aid of heaven one Roman may triumph over a thousand barbarians.' but if we devote our lives for the salvation of our brethren, we shall obtain the crown of martyrdom, and our immortal reward will be liberally paid by God and posterity. These magnanimous sentiments were supported by the vigor of his actions. He repelled the threefold attack of the Persians, improved the divisions of their chiefs, and by a well-concerted train of marches, retreats, and successful actions, finally chased them from the field into the fortified cities of Medea and Assyria. In the severity of the winter season, Sabaraza deemed himself secure in the walls of Salban. He was surprised by the activity of Heraclius, who divided his troops and performed a laborious march in the silence of the night. The flat roofs of the houses were defended with useless valor against the darts and torches of the Romans. The satraps and nobles of Persia, with their wives and children, and the flower of their martial youth, were either slain or made prisoners. The general escaped by a precipitous flight, but his golden armor was the prize of the conqueror, and the soldiers of Heraclius enjoyed the wealth and repose which they had so nobly deserved. On the return of spring the emperor traversed in seven days the mountains of Kurdistan, and passed without resistance the rapid stream of the Tigris. Oppressed by the weight of their spoils and captives, the Roman army halted under the walls of Amida, and Heraclius informed the Senate of Constantinople of his safety and success, which they had already felt by the retreat of the besiegers. The bridges of the Euphrates were destroyed by the Persians, but as soon as the emperor had discovered a ford, they hastily retired to defend the banks of the Saurus in Cilicia. That river, an impetuous torrent, was about three hundred feet broad, the bridge was fortified with strong turrets, and the banks were lined with barbarian archers. After a bloody conflict, which continued till the evening, the Romans prevailed in the assault, and a Persian of gigantic size was slain and thrown into the Saurus by the hand of the emperor himself. The enemies were dispersed and dismayed. Heraclius pursued his march to Sebasta in Cappadocia, and at the expiration of three years the same coast of the Euxine applauded his return from a long and victorious expedition. Instead of skirmishing on the frontier, the two monarchs who disputed the empire of the east aimed their desperate strokes at the heart of their rival. 
the military force of Persia was wasted by the marches and combats of twenty years, and many of the veterans, who had survived the perils of the sword and the climate, were still detained in the fortresses of Egypt and Syria. But the revenge and ambition of Chosros exhausted his kingdom, and the new levies of subjects, strangers, and slaves were divided into three formidable bodies. The first army of fifty thousand men, illustrious by the ornament and title of the golden spears, was destined to march against Heraclius. The second was stationed to prevent his junction with the troops of his brother Theodorus, and the third was commanded to besiege Constantinople, and to second the operations of the Chagan, with whom the Persian king had ratified a treaty of alliance and partition. Sarbar, the general of the third army, penetrated through the provinces of Asia to the well-known camp of Chalcedon, and amused himself with the destruction of the sacred and profane buildings of the Asiatic suburbs, while he impatiently waited the arrival of his Scythian friends on the opposite side of the Bosphorus. On the twenty-ninth of June, thirty thousand barbarians, the vanguard of the Avars, forced the long wall and drove into the capital a promiscuous crowd of peasants, citizens, and soldiers. Fourscore thousand of his native subjects, and of the vassal tribes of Gepidae, Russians, Bulgarians, and Sclavonians, advanced under the standard of the Chagan. A month was spent in marches and negotiations, but the whole city was invested on the 31st of July, from the suburbs of Pera and Galata to the Becernay and Seven Towers, and the inhabitants descried with terror the flaming signals of the European and Asiatic shores. In the meanwhile, the magistrates of Constantinople repeatedly strove to purchase the retreat of the Chagan, but their deputies were rejected and insulted, and he suffered the patricians to stand before his throne, while the Persian envoys, in silk robes, were seated by his side. "'You see,' said the haughty barbarian, "'the proofs of my perfect union with the great king, and his lieutenant is ready to send into my camp a select band of three thousand warriors.' Presume no longer to tempt your master with a partial and inadequate ransom. Your wealth and your city are the only presents worthy of my acceptance. For yourselves I shall permit you to depart, each with an undergarment and a shirt, and, at my entreaty, my friend Sarbar will not refuse a passage through his lines. Your absent prince, even now a captive or a fugitive, has left Constantinople to its fate nor can you escape the arms of the Abars and Persians, unless you could soar into the air like birds, unless like fishes you could drive into the waves. During ten successive days the capital was assaulted by the Avars, who had made some progress in the science of attack. They advanced to sap or batter the wall, under the cover of the impenetrable tortoise. Their engines discharged a perpetual volley of stones and darts, and twelve lofty towers of wood exalted the combatants to the height of the neighboring ramparts. But the senate and the people were animated by the spirit of Heraclius, who had detached to their relief a body of twelve thousand cuirassiers. The powers of fire and mechanics were used with superior art and success in the defense of Constantinople, and the galleys, with two and three ranks of oars, commanded the Bosphorus, and rendered the Persians the idle spectators of the defeat of their allies. The Avars were repulsed, a fleet of Sclavonian canoes was destroyed in the harbor, the vassals of the Chagan threatened to desert, his provisions were exhausted, and after burning his engines he gave the signal of a slow and formidable retreat. The devotion of the Romans ascribed this signal deliverance to the Virgin Mary, but the Mother of Christ would surely have condemned their inhuman murder of the Persian envoys, 
who were entitled to the rights of humanity if they were not protected by the laws of nations. After the division of his army, Heraclius prudently retired to the banks of the Phasis, from whence he maintained a defensive war against the fifty thousand gold spears of Persia. His anxiety was relieved by the deliverance of Constantinople, his hopes were confirmed by a victory of his brother Theodorus, and to the hostile league of Chosros with the Avars, the Roman emperor opposed the useful and honorable alliance of the Turks. At his liberal invitation, the horde of Chosars transported their tents from the plains of the Volga to the mountains of Georgia. Heraclius received them in the neighborhood of Telflis, and the Khan, with his nobles, dismounted from their horses, if we may credit the Greeks, and fell prostrate on the ground to adore the purple of the Caesars. Such voluntary homage and important aid were entitled to the warmest acknowledgments, and the emperor, taking off his own diadem, placed it on the head of the Turkish prince, whom he saluted with a tender embrace and the appellation of son. After a sumptuous banquet, he presented Zebel with the plate and ornaments, the gold, the gems, and the silk, which had been used at the imperial table, and with his own hand distributed rich jewels and earrings to his new allies. In a secret interview he produced the portrait of his daughter Eudocia, condescended to flatter the barbarian with the promise of a fair and august bride, obtained an immediate succor of forty thousand horse, and negotiated a strong diversion of the Turkish armies on the side of the Oxus. The Persians, in their turn, retreated with precipitation. In the camp of Edessa, Heraclius reviewed an army of seventy thousand Romans and strangers, and some months were successfully employed in the recovery of the cities of Syria, Mesopotamia, and Armenia, whose fortifications had been imperfectly restored. Sarbar still maintained the important station of Chalcedon, but the jealousy of Chosros, or the artifice of Heraclius, soon alienated the mind of that powerful satrap from the service of his king and country. A messenger was intercepted with real or fictitious mandate to the Cataragon, or second-in-command, directing him to send, without delay to the throne, the head of a guilty or unfortunate general. The dispatches were transmitted to Sarbar himself, and as soon as he read the sentence of his own death, he dexterously inserted the names of four hundred officers, assembled a military council, and asked the Cataragon whether he was prepared to execute the commands of their tyrant. The Persians unanimously declared that Chosros had forfeited the scepter. A separate treaty was concluded with the government of Constantinople, and if some considerations of honor or policy restrained Sarbar from joining the standard of Heraclius, the emperor was assured that he might prosecute, without interruption, his designs of victory and peace. Deprived of his firmest support, and doubtful of the fidelity of his subjects, the greatness of Chosros was still conspicuous in its ruins. The number of five hundred thousand may be interpreted as an oriental metaphor, to describe men and arms, the horses and elephants, that covered Medea and Assyria against the invasion of Heraclius. Yet the Romans boldly advanced from the Araxes to the Tigris, and the timid prudence of Radetes was content to follow them by forced marches through a desolate country, till he received a peremptory mandate to risk the fate of Persia in a decisive battle. Eastward of the Tigris, at the end of the bridge of Mozul, the great Nineveh had formerly been erected. The city, and even the ruins of the city, had long since disappeared. The vacant space afforded a spacious field for the operations of the two armies. But these operations are neglected by the Byzantine historians, and, like the authors of epic poetry and romance, 
they ascribed the victory not to the military conduct, but to the personal valor of their favorite hero. On this memorable day, Heracleus, on his horse Phallus, surpassed the bravest of his warriors. His lip was pierced with a spear, the steed was wounded in the thigh, but he carried his master safe and victorious through the triple phalanx of the barbarians. In the heat of the action, three valiant chiefs were successively slain by the sword and lance of the emperor. Among these was Radetes himself. He fell like a soldier, but the sight of his head scattered grief and despair through the fainting ranks of the Persians. His armor of pure and massy gold, the shield of one hundred and twenty plates, the sword and belt, the saddle and cuirass, adorned the triumph of Heracleus, and if he had not been faithful to Christ and his mother, the champion of Rome might have offered the fourth Opim's spoils to the Jupiter of the capital. In the battle of Nineveh, which was fiercely fought from daybreak to the eleventh hour, twenty-eight standards, besides those which might be broken or torn, were taken from the Persians. The greatest part of their army was cut in pieces, and the victors, concealing their own loss, passed the night in the field. They acknowledged that on this occasion it was less difficult to kill than to discomfit the soldiers of Chosros. Amidst the bodies of their friends, no more than two bowshot from the enemy, the remnant of the Persian cavalry stood firm till the seventh hour of the night. About the eighth hour they retired to their unrifled camp, collected their baggage, and dispersed on all sides, from the want of orders rather than of resolution. The diligence of Heracleus was not less admirable in the use of victory, by a march of forty-eight miles in a four-and-twenty hours, his vanguard occupied the bridges of the great and the lesser Zab, and the cities and palaces of Assyria were open for the first time to the Romans. By a just gradation of magnificent scenes, they penetrated to the royal seat of Dastagerd, and, though much of the treasure had been removed, and much had been expended, the remaining wealth appears to have exceeded their hopes, and even to have satiated their avarice. Whatever could not be easily transported they consumed with fire, that Chosros might feel the anguish of those wounds which he had so often inflicted on the provinces of the empire, and justice might allow the excuse if the desolation had been confined to the works of regal luxury, if national hatred, military license, and religious zeal had not wasted with equal rage the habitations and the temples of the guiltless subject. The recovery of three hundred Roman standards, and the deliverance of the numerous captives of Edessa and Alexandria, reflect a purer glory on the arms of Heracleus. From the palace of Dastergird, he pursued his march within a few miles of Moden, or Setsophon, till he was stopped on the banks of the Arba by the difficulty of the passage, the rigor of the season, and perhaps the fame of an impregnable capital. The return of the emperor is marked by the modern name of the city of Shersur. He fortunately passed Mount Zara, before the snow, which fell incessantly thirty-four days, and the citizens of Gansa, or Taurus, were compelled to entertain the soldiers and their horses with a hospitable reception. When the ambition of Chosros was reduced to the defense of his hereditary kingdom, the love of glory, or even the sense of shame, should have urged him to meet his rival in the field. In the battle of Nineveh his courage might have taught the Persians to vanquish, or he might have fallen with honor by the lance of a Roman emperor. The successor of Cyrus chose rather, at a secure distance, to expect the event, to assemble the relics of the defeat, and to retire by measured steps before the march of Heracleus, 
till he beheld with a sigh the once-loved mansions of Dastergird. Both his friends and enemies were persuaded that it was the intention of Chosros to bury himself under the ruins of the city and palace, and as both might have been equally adverse to his flight, the monarch of Asia, with Syra and three concubines, escaped through a hole in the wall nine days before the arrival of the Romans. The slow and stately procession in which he showed himself to the prostrate crowd was changed to a rapid and secret journey, and the first evening he lodged in the cottage of a peasant, whose humble door would scarcely give admittance to the great king. His superstition was subdued by fear. On the third day he entered with joy the fortifications of Cessaphon, yet he still doubted of his safety till he had opposed the river Tigris to the pursuit of the Romans. The discovery of his flight agitated with terror and tumult the palace, the city, and the camp of Dastergird. The satraps hesitated whether they had most to fear from their sovereign or their enemy, and the females of the harem were astonished and pleased by the sight of mankind, till the jealous husband of three thousand wives again confined them to a more distant castle. At his command the army of Dastergird retreated to a new camp. The front was covered by the Arba, and a line of two hundred elephants. The troops of the more distant provinces successively arrived, and the vilest domestics of the king and satraps were enrolled for the last defence of the throne. It was still in the power of Chosros to obtain a reasonable peace, and he was repeatedly pressed by the messengers of Heraclius to spare the blood of his subjects, and to relieve a humane conqueror from the painful duty of carrying fire and sword through the fairest countries of Asia. But the pride of the Persian had not yet sunk to the level of his fortune. He derived a momentary confidence from the retreat of the emperor. He wept with impotent rage over the ruins of his Assyrian palaces, and disregarded too long the rising murmurs of the nation, who complained that their lives and fortunes were sacrificed to the obstinacy of an old man. That unhappy old man was himself tortured with the sharpest pains both of mind and body, and in the consciousness of his approaching end, he resolved to fix the tiara on the head of Merdaza, the most favoured of his sons. But the will of Chosros was no longer revered, and Syros, who gloried in the rank and merit of his mother Syra, had conspired with the malcontents to assert and anticipate the rights of primogeniture. Twenty-two satraps, they styled themselves patriots, were tempted by the wealth and honours of a new reign. To the soldiers the heir of Chosros promised an increase of pay, to the Christians the free exercise of their religion, to the captives liberty and rewards, and to the nation instant peace and the reduction of taxes. It was determined by the conspirators that Syros, with the ensigns of royalty, should appear in the camp, and if the enterprise should fail, his escape was contrived to the imperial court. But the new monarch was saluted with unanimous acclamations, the flight of Chosros, yet where could he have fled, was rudely arrested, eighteen sons were massacred before his face, and he was thrown into a dungeon, where he expired on the fifth day. The Greeks and modern Persians minutely describe how Chosros was insulted, and famished, and tortured, by the command of an inhumane son, who so far surpassed the example of his father. But at the time of his death what tongue would relate the story of the parricide? What eye could penetrate into the tower of darkness? According to the faith and mercy of his Christian enemies, he sunk without hope into a still deeper abyss, 
and it will not be denied that tyrants of every age and sect are the best entitled to such infernal abodes. The glory of the house of Sassan ended with the life of Chosros. His unnatural son enjoyed only eight months the fruit of his crimes, and in the space of four years the regal title was assumed by nine candidates, who disputed, with a sword or dagger, the fragments of an exhausted monarchy. Every province, and each city of Persia, was the scene of independence, of discord, and of blood, and the state of anarchy prevailed about eight years longer, till the factions were silenced and united under the common yoke of the Arabian caliphs. As soon as the mountains became passable, the emperor received the welcome news of the success of the conspiracy, the death of Chosros, and the elevation of his eldest son to the throne of Persia. The authors of the revolution, eager to display their merits in the court or camp of Taurus, preceded the ambassadors of Syros, who delivered the letters of their master to his brother, the emperor of the Romans. In the language of the usurpers of every age, he imputes his own crimes to the deity, and without degrading his equal majesty, he offers to reconcile the long discord of the two nations, by a treaty of peace and alliance more durable than brass or iron. The conditions of the treaty were easily defined and faithfully executed. In the recovery of the standards and prisoners which had fallen into the hands of the Persians, the emperor imitated the example of Augustus. Their care of the national dignity was celebrated by the poets of the times, but the decay of genius may be measured by the distance between Horus and George of Pisidia. The subjects and brethren of Heraclius were redeemed from persecution, slavery, and exile, but instead of the Roman eagles, the true wood of the Holy Cross was restored to the importunate demands of the successor of Constantine. The victor was not ambitious of enlarging the weakness of the empire, the son of Chosros abandoned without regret the conquests of his father, the Persians who evacuated the cities of Syria and Egypt were honorably conducted to the frontier, and a war which had wounded the vitals of the two monarchies produced no change in their external and relative situation. The return of Heraclius from Taurus to Constantinople was a perpetual triumph, and after the exploits of six glorious campaigns he peaceably enjoyed the Sabbath of his toils. After a long impatience, the senate, the clergy, and the people went forth to meet their hero, with tears and acclamations, with olive branches and innumerable lamps. He entered the capital in a chariot drawn by four elephants, and as soon as the emperor could disengage himself from the tumult of public joy, he tasted more genuine satisfaction in the embraces of his mother and his son. The succeeding year was illustrated by a triumph of a very different kind, the restitution of the true cross to the holy sepulchre. Heraclius performed in person the pilgrimage of Jerusalem, the identity of the relic was verified by the discreet patriarch, and this august ceremony has been commemorated by the annual festival of the exaltation of the cross. Before the emperor presumed to tread the consecrated ground, he was instructed to strip himself of the diadem and purple, the pomp and vanity of the world but in the judgment of his clergy the persecution of the Jews was more easily reconciled with the precepts of the gospel. He again ascended his throne to receive the congratulations of the ambassadors of France and India, and the fame of Moses, Alexander, and Hercules was eclipsed in the popular estimation by the superior merit and glory of the great Heraclius. Yet the deliverer of the East was indigent and feeble. 
of the Persian spoils, the most valuable portion had been expended in the war, distributed to the soldiers, or buried, by an unlucky tempest, in the waves of the Euxine. The conscience of the emperor was oppressed by the obligation of restoring the wealth of the clergy, which he had borrowed for their own defence. A perpetual fund was required to satisfy these inexorable creditors. The provinces, already wasted by the arms and avarice of the Persians, were compelled to a second payment of the same taxes, and the arrears of a simple citizen, the treasurer of Damascus, were commuted to a fine of one hundred thousand pieces of gold. The loss of two hundred thousand soldiers, who had fallen by the sword, was of less fatal importance than the decay of arts, agriculture, and population, in this long and destructive war, and although a victorious army had been formed under the standard of Heraclius, the unnatural effort appears to have exhausted rather than exercised their strength. While the emperor triumphed at Constantinople or Jerusalem, an obscure town on the confines of Syria was pillaged by the Saracens, and they cut in pieces some troops who advanced to its relief. An ordinary and trifling occurrence had it not been the prelude of a mighty revolution. These robbers were the apostles of Mohammed. Their fanatic valor had emerged from the desert, and in the last eight years of his reign Heraclius lost to the Arabs the same provinces which he had rescued from the Persians. End of chapter 46, part 4